Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. In this week's episode, we're still in the Nanjing decade, and we'll be talking about the rapid rise and equally rapid fall of the feminist movement, which was mainly based in urban China at the time. The discourse on feminism in the Nanjing decade isn't just a simple narrative. It actually takes the form of a debate between two different camps. There are those who believe that women were the champions of the feminist movement, through their various publications, groups and activist movements. And then there are those who believe that the women's movement was essentially co-opted simultaneously by the commercial industry for profit, the government for greater control over society and the disenfranchised male intelligentsia for their own political gain. The debate is quite an intriguing one and is also wrapped up in other social and political developments taking place at the time, such as the development, or lack thereof, of a democratic movement, the launch of Chiang Kai-shek's New Life movement, and the growth in competition in the newspaper and magazine industry. What I want to do in this episode is go through both arguments, throwing in a couple of case studies along the way to keep it juicy, and in the end I'll evaluate the two so we can have a better idea of the true nature of feminism and the new woman in 1930s China. But first, as always, let's start with a little bit of background. So the beginnings of the feminist movement in China can be traced back to the end of the Qing dynasty, when many women joined the anti-Qing pro-republican movement, as they believed that this new form of government would support equality of the sexes and promote women's rights, including suffrage. The first wave of feminists championed the idea that men and women were the same, as they were all human beings and were therefore entitled to the same natural rights that belonged to all of mankind. While this first wave was silenced under the presidency or emperorship of Yuan Shikai, it resurged upon the division of China into warlord states in the late 1910s. The intellectual leaders of the May 4th and New Culture Movement of the 1910s and 1920s saw women's rights as necessary for improving the state of China and developing it into a modern nation. As the May 4th fever died down and the country was basically reunited under the nationalists in 1928, the second wave feminists became the leaders of the third wave feminist movement, which sought not only equality for women, but also freedom in the form of the chance for women to live their lives in the manner in which they saw fit. Borrowing heavily from Western concepts of modernity, these new women not only adopted new styles and fashions, but also new ways of thinking that challenged old traditions, such as the right to choose their own marriage partner, the right to a holistic education, the right to work outside of the home, and the right to go out in public and enjoy the new range of recreational activities that had sprung up around the country. Before we move forward and explore what these new women looked like, however, I think it's important to identify who exactly we're talking about when we say new women or feminists. So when it comes to China in the 1930s, these women were mainly upper middle class and middle class urban women. They were educated, usually to a university level, and sometimes they'd even studied overseas, for example, in the United States. Some writers even describe these women as elite, so as to distinguish them from women who may have come from upper middle class and rich urban families, but had no higher education, and were still expected to conform to traditional Chinese gender roles. The new woman, by contrast, was a highly privileged urban figure, who eschewed stereotypical roles such as the good wife, filial daughter and chaste widow, to take up new roles in society, such as girl student, career woman, 
and revolutionary. We can't really include rural women at all in this discussion, as they existed in a completely removed traditional sphere that revolved around rural business and farming. The countryside remained largely traditional in its attitudes towards women due to a lack of connection with the urban coastal elite, and continued poverty meant that efforts were focused on producing food rather than modernising the nation through social reform. So in terms of feminist movements and activism, during the first two waves of the feminist movement, some key groups and organisations were formed that acted as the hubs of all of the activity. So there was the Beijing-based Women's Rights League, the Progressive Association for Women's Participation in Politics, and the United Women's Associations that were scattered around urban centres such as Shanghai and other major cities in Guangdong and Zhejiang. In its early days, the feminist movement was led by active female participants in the call for social change. Modelling themselves on similar movements taking place in Western countries, such as the UK and the US, they held street marches and rallies, they handed out pamphlets, and I think on multiple occasions they even stormed Parliament. In general, the members of these women's groups were interested in securing real change for women when it came to family law, educational rights, politics and career opportunities. They wanted to help women throw off the shackles of domestic life by achieving equality with men. They did manage to achieve some of their goals. Uh, For example, when the draft constitution of the Nanjing government was circulated in 1936, it guaranteed the participation of women in parliament, in democratic committees and in the electoral process in general. However, the actual constitution was delayed in its publication, partly because of the invasion of Japan, which I feel like is always the major theme of the Nanjing decade, but also because President Chiang Kai-shek was generally really hostile towards the idea of democracy. This is a trend that we saw developing in episode 7 when we discussed his rise to power and his opposition to the left wing. Apart from the more activist types, the new woman in the late 1920s and early 1930s also took the form of what's known as the modern woman. Arguably, these women were able to reap the benefits of the work that the actual women's activists and other groups had done to ensure that women would be able to have the same opportunities as men in society, whilst also indulging in the aesthetics that a modern commercial society afforded them. They had new opportunities to attend universities and find jobs, instead of just being confined to the home. They could also pursue new recreational activities, such as shopping, going to the park, going to the cinema, going to the dance hall, and even going swimming. Adverts and posters depicted scantily clad women in crop tops and high-cut swimsuits as the new ideal. Women could wear what they wanted and do what they wanted as well, all without needing permission or supervision. Now, all of this kind of makes it seem as if women were in control of their destiny by the 1930s, even if we are just talking about these elite women. It kind of seems as if the modern woman existed in a world where she could do whatever she wanted, buy whatever she wanted, and marry whomever she wanted. But there is another argument to suggest that women were not necessarily in the driver's seat when it came to deciding their own fate. Some scholars argue that it was in fact a push and pull between the commercial world and the elite urban intelligentsia that dictated how the modern woman acted and looked. 
They state that prior to the founding of the Republic, the intellectual elite had been some of the most important and powerful people in China, controlling local and provincial institutions at the lowest level and advising the emperor on national and international policy at the highest. With the fall of the imperial system in 1911, however, which ironically the reform-minded Western-educated intellectuals had been calling for, and with the modernisation of China's economy, military and broader education systems, the power of the intellectual class ebbed until their influence over governance of China reached its lowest point with the ascension of the nationalist government in 1927. Chiang's government was almost completely staffed with military and businessmen, leaving the intellectual class feeling as if they had been usurped by basically the rich and the strong. Okay, fine, so the intellectuals were pissed off because they felt they should be running the country. What's new? But what does all of this have to do with the women's movement? Well, part of the traditional role of the intellectual was to determine the correct moral positioning of the emperor and the nation and provide guidance and wisdom as the enlightened leaders of the dynasty. This is during the imperial period. Their lack of a strong political foothold in modern China meant that they turned to the next best thing over which they could exert their control. And this is what Professor Louise Edwards has termed policing the modern woman. These intellectuals adopted the cause of the new woman and debated it hotly to show that they had the correct understanding of how to modernise women and therefore how to modernise China. Because, you know, education equals I'm enlightened equals I know better than you about everything. They may not have had access to political power, but they did control large swathes of the modern publishing and journalism industries, as well as the film industry, as we've discussed over the past couple of episodes. The boom in the newspaper and magazine industry meant that articles written mostly by men for men could reach circulations in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands. These articles included discussions about women, which usually focused on how the new woman fit into the schema of modern China, what this new woman looked like, how she behaved, and what role she played exactly. So, what did the new woman look like to the properly educated, nationalist-minded, modern intellectual? The new woman was to be intelligent and moral. Instead of just aiming for a good marriage, she aimed to be independent in all areas of life, financially, educationally and socially. She should have a well-developed, well-rounded character and not only strive to have knowledge of national affairs, but also strive to use her knowledge to benefit the nation in some positive way. She should have a politically oriented mindset as well as a moral, virtuous disposition. This was no short order. This portrayal of the modern woman was in contrast to the one crafted by the commercial industry through their advertisements of new, modern consumer products. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the commercial sector in China had crafted the image of the perfect modern woman. She had a bobbed haircut, high-heeled shoes, she was wearing the latest fashion and makeup, and she lived in a home equipped with all the modern furnishings. This image was deplorable to the intellectuals, who drew a sharp distinction between the real new woman and the pseudo-modern woman that had been created by new business. As Professor Edwards puts it, for intellectuals, quote, education prompting concrete political action was privileged over education for recreation. Knowledge of international affairs was contrasted with knowledge of international fashions. Enthusiasm for modernization was juxtaposed with an enthusiasm for consuming modern commodities, 
and independence leading to political commitment was contrasted with independence leading to fun-loving gallivanting. So basically, a woman who only knew about going out for fun, who only was interested in wearing the latest clothes and only talked about shopping was a fake. They were not only a danger unto themselves, but actually threatened the strength of the nation as a whole, as the intellectual elite saw the women's movement as a core part of the modernisation of China. Now, this isn't a new concept by the 1930s. In the past, women had often been linked with the idea of national salvation, and the weakness of China in terms of international politics had often been associated with the backwardness of its women, who were confined to the home, barely able to step outside due to their bound feet and ignorance of affairs outside of the household. So this was supposed to be a reflection of the state of China as a whole. The invasion of the country by foreigners was often compared to the violation of women, and it was paramount that China's women became modern, as all successful modern nations, especially those Western ones that China tended to model herself after, all had modern women themselves. A huge issue lay with the problem of the old woman disguised as the modern woman. Now, this old woman, while she dressed in the latest fashions and knew all about the political topics that she should know about according to all the latest publications, she still had a traditional mindset and an old way of thinking. Her education was only a tool to make her more marketable as a domestic partner for some businessman who wanted a modern woman in the streets and a neo-Confucian in the sheets. Her reworking of the iconic Chinese dress into the short, tight-fitting qipao no longer signified her modernity, but rather signalled her sexual availability and willingness to restrict herself by invoking traditional culture. The more the issue was debated, the more women were divided up into smaller and smaller subsets, with those who focused on aesthetics, marrying for wealth, modern comforts and sexual liberation being seen as scourges when compared with their politically-minded, nation-loving, revolution-inclined, clean-cut, financially independent, highly educated sisters. Honestly, I'm confused just reading about this, especially as I recently cut my hair into a bob. I don't know if that makes me a fake modern woman or not. I can't imagine what it must have been like for a woman actually living at the time, trying to keep up with the correct narrative. Some scholars have argued that this behaviour by the majority male intellectual elite reflects an identity crisis, a fear of losing their place in society, or an unease with the rapid modernisation of China. Whatever it was, it placed a huge paradoxical burden on women, who became not only the deciding factor in how weak or strong a society would be, but also the product of said weak nation, which was currently in the throes of political chaos. Now, what we're discussing right now is actually the discourse on the new woman and feminism, mainly as portrayed in the media. And you might be thinking, well, was that really the same thing as the new woman herself? Isn't there a disconnect between what people were saying and what people were actually doing? How much of this conversation between the intelligentsia in their snooty magazines and newspapers actually had a bearing on the lives of women? So while I think there is some difference between the two, I do think that the link can't be overlooked. The narrative of what's socially acceptable and what's considered deplorable does have an effect on people's behaviour. And if you control the discourse, often you can control society itself. 
In fact, there are a couple of good examples of how the discussions, narratives and debates surrounding the modern woman in China led to scandal and even tragedy for some of its young female participants. First of all, we're going to talk about the Huang Lu elopement. In 1928, a young woman from an affluent family named Huang Hui Ru eloped with one of the family's servants, Lu Gengrong, leaving her family home in Shanghai and fleeing around 50 miles north to Suzhou. The affair began when Huang's original arranged marriage fell through and Lu comforted her, which led to a romantic relationship and Huang falling pregnant. By August, however, the couple was discovered and Lu was arrested and charged with abducting Huang and sentenced to two years imprisonment. The case was a media sensation and for years, articles, essays, books, theatre productions and even films were released covering and dramatising the affair and this trickled all the way down into street culture with artists such as folk singers and storytellers recounting details of the case to a rapt audience. The Huang Lu affair became the topic of intense discussion and debate about the role of women, gender relations, sexuality, family and traditions in modern China. The news media not only reported the ongoing developments in the case, but actually became a catalyst for its development through their own depictions of the actors through their own sociological lenses. Huang, who can't technically be considered one of these new women because even though she was from a rich family, it was a very traditional family and she didn't have a university degree. So she was particularly vulnerable to being influenced and actually she ended up basing a lot of her decisions on her impressions of the media about herself. While she had the opportunity to voice her opinions, which she would not have had if she had stayed at home as the perfect filial daughter, Her words and actions were often twisted by the media and entertainment industries who wanted her image to be that of a victim or a shameless youth or a revolutionary hero, depending on the scenario. When she was portrayed as an embattled hero, releasing herself from the bonds of feudalism, she used this attention to gain publicity for Lu, her lover's, court case, and try to support herself as a single mother. However, when her image was changed by the media into that of a helpless, weak woman, she seemed to take the image on as people began to sympathise with her and encouraged her to return home to her family, which she actually did. The outcome of the affair, which ended in 1930 but continued to be dramatised well into the mid-30s, was reliant on Huang's reactions to her portrayal in the media and the public perception of that portrayal. In many cases, people from the middle and lower ends of society were actually outraged as they still had a fairly traditional mindset and felt that Lu should actually be charged with raping and abducting Huang as a minor, which obviously wasn't true, they were both complicit in the act, but it just goes to show how many of these new thoughts hadn't actually penetrated into the lower rungs of society. Huang's cycle of action, reaction, and then new action based on the reaction meant that her image as a female figure shifted as often and as drastically as media perceptions of what it was to be a modern woman, and whether or not that was a good thing in the first place. Intense media attention and public scrutiny sometimes became so much as to actually take its victims out altogether. The most prominent examples are those of actresses Aisha and Ran Liang Yu who both committed suicide after their public lives were trotted out for all to see in the press and salacious rumours and malicious gossip became too much for them to bear. 
Aisha was, to all intents and purposes, trying to fulfil the role of a truly modern woman. She had left her arranged marriage and feudalistic family to pursue a career in film in Shanghai, and became a writer as well as actress, becoming one of only two female screenwriters in the left-wing cinema movement. Intense public pressure surrounding her love affair with the director is said to have led to her suicide, and the tragedy was then emulated in director Tsai Chu-sheng's film New Women. The star actress, Ran Liang-yu, later committed suicide, again seemingly collapsing under the weight of public interrogation over her scandalous love life. She died at just 24, having had her name smeared in the press due to her lifestyle. I think these cases demonstrate just how complicated it was to be an acceptable modern woman in an age where the definition was constantly shifting under one's feet. I think it also reveals how susceptible young women were, not only to societal pressures, but also to a reversion to traditional values and actions. The idea of committing suicide, for example, was not actually seen as a negative or dirty thing, but rather a noble and virtuous act committed by widowed women who wanted to remain loyal, wronged women who wanted to be later martyred, or women who wanted to avoid bringing pain or shame to their families. The state of flux in Chinese society meant that, in reality, the women that were produced were halfway modern and halfway traditional, caught in a vortex created by this warped culture. While the post-Enlightenment intellectual version of womanhood did battle with commerce and, occasionally, actual women, the nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek came up with its own version of ideal femininity under the social policy known as the New Life Movement. We're going to talk more about what the New Life Movement was when we get to the episode on politics and fascism during the Nanjing decade, but that's in a few episodes' time. For now, I just want to give a brief overview of the aims of the social policy with regards to women. The New Life Movement was a campaign launched by Chiang Kai-shek in 1934 in order to promote a sort of pseudo-traditional neo-Confucian morality mixed in with a bit of Christianity, authoritarianism and nationalism. When it came to women, this essentially meant the promotion of traditional feminine virtues. As far as this movement was concerned, women should focus on being good mothers and virtuous wives and be devoted to maintaining a domestic utopia. Although this view of the modern woman sometimes clashed with that of the intellectual elite, they did have some overlap in that they felt that women's newfound sexual freedom was a danger to the moral fabric of society, and her rapidly increasing consumerism only increased her dependence on money, making her a sort of parasite. The New Life movement was much less concerned with liberation and education, however, as it was more geared towards the ancient ideals of chastity and domesticity. The New Life movement didn't last long, but it did reflect the Nanjing government's growing conservatism, which also explained why the democratic movements at the time came to a screeching halt, and all other facets of the women's movement were not able to get off the ground, as they lacked any kind of official backing whatsoever. So, in the end, which side got it right? Was the feminist movement of the 1930s a broad social movement led by pioneering women, or was it directed by the male intellectual elite of urban China, or even the commercial industry? The irony that the entire women's movement may have been initiated, controlled and derailed by men is not lost on anyone, I don't think. But luckily, I don't think it's as black and white as all that. To me, it seems like a case of women owning the action, and the elites in society, the majority of which were men, owned the discourse. 
Many of the women in society were freed. They were able to go off and have new experiences. And yes, being able to be a consumer is a sort of freedom. They could wear high heels, study at university, marry whoever they wanted, take jobs outside of the home. But all the while, they had to battle with society's pressures and expectations, which were constantly shifting and often in conflict with one another. Women were constantly being scrutinised, judged and ridiculed for their behaviour. And while they were being told how to behave, what they were being told was constantly evolving. I think the case studies that I pointed out earlier really demonstrate this really well, especially how this evolving narrative could even lead to a change in one's character, damage one's psyche and even lead to suicide. But in the end, it all came crashing down. Like I said, this is the theme of the Nanjing decade. Nothing really gets a chance to get up and get going, you know? The reasons that feminism wasn't able to take off revolve around China's political and military circumstances. Once the war with Japan broke out, women weren't really the focus of male intelligentsia anymore, and the discourse around national salvation shifted to new ground, mainly political and military. Also, the nationalist government became particularly hardened against any sort of democratic movement, and this led to a further dampening of any chances for women to be more involved in the political process. Women did go on to become prominent figures in the war. They fought on the front lines for both the nationalists and the communists, and they acted as political and cultural figures, though this was more in the communist camp, I would argue, than the nationalist camp. However, the ideals and the discourse around the new woman remained confined to the post-May 4th Enlightenment period, only to emerge once again once the CCP took power in 1949 to create their own version of the new communist woman. So that's it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it and you learned something new. I'm hoping to get another mini episode on modern China out next week. I will see how I do. It's a topic that I'm quite interested in. It's about how the Chinese government makes people disappear and sometimes reappear. Sometimes they're gone forever. I think it could be an interesting topic and it shouldn't be as research heavy as all my other topics, but we'll see how I go. Thanks very much for listening and I hope you tune in next time.